Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of the Amateur Gourmet Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Roberts, the Amateur Gourmet, and if I sound a little stuffed up, that's because I've been face-to-face with COVID over the past week. That's why there was no episode last week. I am actually at the tail end of it. I'm just doing a test right now to see if I have a very faint pink line, which I expect to, and I'm traveling to New York on Thursday, so back in the world I go. Um, But anyway, I'm very excited to share with you an episode that I recorded right before I got COVID with Ever Meister, who I first met almost like 15 years ago, let's say, in New York at my favorite coffee shop at the time, Joe on Waverly. And Ever is now um, a full-time coffee expert. Uh, They're also a journalist and they've written for a variety of publications. They offer Home, in-home espresso tutoring. They lead educational trips to coffee farms throughout Central America. And they've written a book about coffee in New York City. So I'm so excited. Also, I should mention here that I got a new espresso maker, a Breville Barista Pro, which we are absolutely loving. No, they're not sponsoring this, but I make that joke a lot in this podcast, actually. But it's amazing. So that's why I wanted to talk to Ever. But you don't need to have an espresso maker to learn all about coffee in this episode. So without further ado, here's my talk with Ever Meister. All right. Well, welcome to the Amateur Gourmet Podcast, Meister. It's nice to see you again after so many years. It's so nice to see you too, Adam. We met at Joe, which I formerly used to refer to as Joe the Art of Coffee, which was, I think, (laughs) its original name on Waverly. Is that where you started out as a barista? No, but it was my first really serious coffee job. Uh, I had worked for as a barista for a few years in Boston when I was in college before then. Okay. So were you there at the very beginning though, like when it first opened and it was like Amy Sedaris was selling cupcakes and Sam Shepard was writing plays in there. I mean, yeah, it was like the <laughs> coolest coffee shop I'd ever been to. It made me love New York so much. It it was very quintessentially the New York coffee shop in that moment that like sex in the city sort of, you know, vibe in there. Uh, I was, I started about six months after they opened, I think. Okay. So did you like from right out of the gate, like always love coffee? Was that just something that you were, you gravitated to or was it a a gradual kind of thing? I always loved coffee. Yeah. I grew up really loving, you know, I grew up in New Jersey, so we didn't drink very good coffee. Um, I grew up just drinking diner style stuff and um, chock full of nuts. And then in in college, I really found myself drawn to the environment that coffee was consumed in. Like a lot of people, uh, it was like the heyday of the coffee shop with the big mismatching chairs and (laughs) abrasive music on the stereo. And I was really drawn to that. And I was studying to be a journalist in school and I am painfully shy. And so I thought, I need to get a job where I'm forced to interact with people and Mm -hmm. ask questions. Yeah. Yeah. And then I think having that like inquisitiveness and learning to really love the regulars that I had and then combining it with this thing that there was so much to learn about. It just, I was off to the races and uh, coffee became my career for the next, it was 21 years. Wow. By the way, do you have a bird? I don't, but my, you know, my dog's outside. (laughs) Oh, okay. I feel like I heard it here like chirping. Okay. Oh, yeah. maybe that's, 
And it's fine. I just wanted to, I, I felt like there might've been like a parakeet, like in a cage <laughs> over your computer. Um, well, I'm curious. So like the whole coffee shop aesthetic that, so I should tell people who are listening, Meister has been very generous and has been following me in my adventures because when Craig, uh, my partner just got home from making a movie and as my gift to him, I bought him a Breville Barista Pro, which is not sponsoring this podcast and not sponsoring anything. I just bought it with my own money because I'd read online that that was one of the better ones to get if you're an amateur, which I am, but, you know, sort of went out on a limb and Craig is from Seattle. Um, so he's a huge coffee snob. Like when we visit my family in Florida, my parents have a Keurig and he, he makes them put out like an actual coffee maker and get real coffee. It's like very intense, but anyway, Meister's been schooling me on frothing my milk and I've been trying to achieve latte art. I got closer today. I don't know if you saw today's video in my Instagram stories, but I made like an exclamation mark. Anyway, my quite, but the question I was going to ask you is like, it feels like there's a certain aesthetic to cappuccinos that started maybe in the early 2000s where it wasn't like a bunch of foam on top of the espresso. It was more like what's the word integrated. Mm -hmm. um, so when did that and how did that all start? You know, I think Coffee is really funny in that every kind of generation in the industry thinks that it invented something, you know, that probably has existed or been true for however long coffee's been around. But I would say that that sort of aesthetic, that picture that we have in our mind when we think of like the perfect specialty coffee cappuccino probably started with David Schomer in the 90s, maybe even the late 80s. Who's that? He owns a coffee shop in Rose Street in Seattle called Vivachi. Oh yeah. I've been there. Yeah. Uh, he's like the father of, of contemporary latte art. And it, he had this sort of philosophy about when you order a cappuccino, you don't want to drink a big frothy head of foam and then coffee underneath. You want to have the experience sort of integrated, like you said. So if you fold the milk into the coffee and make the milk all taste like coffee, then you have this beautiful experience that lasts throughout the entire drink. And that sort of melded into that idea of a cappuccino being, you know, equal parts, like third, you know, one third foam, one third textured steamed milk and one third espresso. Yeah, I guess he is sort of credited as being the person who really made it popular to make beautiful drinks and to call it milk texture in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> so when you started at Joe, um, or even the first coffee shop that you worked at, were, were you expected to make latte art for each latte or cappuccino? Not at the first shop. At the first shop I worked at, it had not yet like permeated the culture. Right. We were still very much kind of in the big flavored 20 ounce latte kind of drink mode. Mm -hmm. Like early Starbucks, like two pumps of this and a half pump of that sugar-free half decaf skim, you know, that kind of a thing. But at Joe, it was sort of the thing. The idea was to make the best coffee in town, the most beautiful coffee in town, but also be the nicest barista. Mm -hmm. So that combination of like service and like just an extraordinary experience. So we were taught how to do latte art right away. And so when you did latte art, was it the kind of thing, like if you screwed up the latte art, you wouldn't serve the customer or would you, would you still like hand it over? There were definitely periods when it would be like, you have to make it over. There was an expectation that people had, especially in the early days of Joe, I would say, because we knew that that was why people were coming in for a lot of the, you know, a lot of the attention that we were getting was 
sort of about the latte art, sort of like, I mean, everybody loves the Magnolia cupcake, but part of the appeal was how beautiful they were and how beautiful mm-hmm. the shop was. And so, yeah, there was definitely uh, a little pressure to make sure that you were putting something good in front of the customer. Because if it was their first time too, everybody wanted to take a picture of their coffee. You know, everyone mm-hmm. wanted to have that experience. And, and now it's everywhere. It's, yeah, everywhere. it's like literally like I feel like you. it's it's like shameful for a coffee shop not to have latte art at this point. It's, so I guess my I think a good place to start for us in our in-depth coffee conversation might be like about the differences between espresso, pour over coffee, drip coffee. And what else is there? Like French press coffee, like like the different approaches to coffee and the benefits to each. Because I have never had the patience, for example, of ordering a pour over coffee. Like that to me seems so <laughs> fussy. And truthfully, up until we got this espresso machine, we just had a drip coffee maker, but we had a burr grinder. So we bought really nice beans. We ground them ourselves. And then we put them in a the traditional coffee maker and made a really nice pot of coffee. But why is it better to slowly pour hot water over it which is a different question, but maybe somewhere in there you can find something to say. <laughs> and that's a really interesting question. I think fundamentally the place to start is to realize that any one of these brewing methods is essentially helping you combine two ingredients. Coffee has two ingredients, right? Coffee and water. Mm-hmm. Strangely, there are all these different ways to make those two ingredients interact to get a coffee beverage. But fundamentally, they all do the same thing, just Mm -hmm. at a different rate and in a different style. So it's funny, often people will sort of compare automatic drip machines with pour over, like what's the difference? The difference fundamentally is that a machine is doing the pouring over for you, but it's Mm -hmm. still pour over coffee. The Mm. pour over part just being that the water is being poured into the coffee and dripping out the bottom, as opposed to with a French press, where the coffee and water are all touching the entire time. So you but get wait, one, why? That's but a why, mm-hmm. why is pour over at a coffee shop so expensive? Because you actually have to stand over it and do it yourself in a, you know, in a more methodic way. It's sort of like the difference between using MS Paint to make a piece of art <laughs> and then, you know, using a paintbrush to make Oh, wow. Art. That's a big difference. Okay. <laughs> But also it sounds like maybe by agitating the coffee with a spoon as the water goes through, you're like exposing more of the ground up coffee to the water, therefore making a more intense, potent drink. Yeah. I'm so sorry about my dog. No, no, it's fine. He's very offended because he likes Keurig. Yeah. He's <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, the difference is sort of the control that you have, how methodical you can be about where you're actually adding the coffee, how much it's moving around in the grounds bed, how much you're adding at a certain time. Because what happens in an automatic drip machine is that the whole process is obscured. That's why people don't think of it as being pour over coffee. You're not actually seeing mm-hmm. the pour over happening, but uh, you could, you don't really know what's going on in there. The coffee could be getting wet and then drying out and then getting wet and then drying out or the bed could be totally uneven and one side could be really over-extracted and the other end could be totally under-extracted. But as you're standing over just a filter watching the process happen, you can control and adjust and make corrections in real time as opposed to brewing coffee in a wing and a prayer kind of. I forgot to ask you, um, where are you? <laughs> <laughs> 
Somewhere where there's a loud dog barking. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Let me actually get her. Uh, I'm in St. Paul, Minnesota. Oh, I had no idea. I was guessing like Portland, Seattle. Um, oh, nice. I would not have guessed <laughs> Minnesota. Okay. So what brought you to Minnesota? A coffee job, actually. Okay. So now with espresso, mm-hmm. there's this whole thing of the um, extraction and like, it seems like there's a real art to grinding the beans, tamping them down. And then trying to pull a shot that is 25 to 35 seconds for a double shot. Is that right? 20 to 30, but that's pretty good. Okay, so I've been doing pretty well. I have to say with my barista, Breville Pro, Breville Breville Barista Pro, which is not sponsoring this, um, I get like 20 to 30 second shots and they're really good. I have to say like these cappuccino drinks are going to put baristas out of business. I'm sorry, but um, they're delicious. So what is the idea behind pulling an espresso shot and what are the things that you have to think about? That's great. So if we think about that, the pour over and the drip coffee and the slow immersion that a French press is, the main difference between espresso and those brewing methods is that you want it to be done fast. And the best way to do it fast is to apply pressure to the brew. So you're essentially forcing the coffee and the water to do the extraction process in a fraction of the time. That's why the amount of coffee that you're going to use is going to be higher you're going to have a more concentrated beverage at the end. And you need that pressure to really force the coffee and water to interact in a way that extracts the compounds in that time that you want. Well, it's interesting because um, the, the coffee writer, Oliver Strand, mm-hmm. um, used to follow me or I, maybe he does follow me, but I wrote him a message long ago. Where I was like, what is the best like home espresso machine to get? And he said, it's not worth it to get one. You're better off going to a coffee shop because home machines can't apply the right amount of pressure and that the the machines that they use in coffee shops are thousands of dollars. And so that always kind of intimidated me. But do you think that's still true? Or do you think that the machines have changed enough that we can mimic what you get at a coffee shop? You know, that's really funny. I, I bet that there was a time in my career when I thought the same thing. But I used to also, I don't know if you know this, Adam, I actually had a, Amanda Byron and I had a, a home coffee tutoring business for a brief time. Okay. Amanda's going to be jealous she's not on this podcast too, because we we still follow each other. Hi, Amanda, (laughs) if you're listening, you'll come on next. Amanda was the first one to teach me to do latte art years ago, and I still have not learned how to do it. But keep going. You had a business. She taught me to do latte art too. So this is like, you know, passing on the knowledge. Um, Yeah. So she and I used to go to people's houses and teach them how to use their home espresso machines. And I remember even then when I was much snobbier about coffee, in my 20s, when I was much snobby about everything, mm-hmm. I was like amazed at the quality of coffee that we could get from these machines. And I've come to really think that it's a little bit of the carpenter blaming his tools situation. Mm-hmm. There are some things that a home espresso machine just can't do. It's most of them are not going to get you the right temperature just right out of the gate to brew coffee and steam milk at the same time. But most of them, I would say the pressure is probably just fine. It's a matter of, A, people usually don't understand enough about coffee brewing to really troubleshoot and to like improve their process. Folks often don't make a bunch of coffee side by side, compare them and say, oh, this is better than that. And if I find up the grind, so there's a little bit of that missing piece of Mm -hmm. the trial and error. Then also, if you don't have a good enough grinder that can make a quality of grind size that is appropriate for the espresso machine, you're never going to get good espresso out of it. And how many people at home have 
the grinder that they need. Mm-hmm. So that's really, it's not the machine as much as it is probably the grinder and the like background knowledge. I feel so bad for Christmas when you're not long ago, we got Craig, my partner's dad, an espresso machine. And then we bought him a grinder. That's like a hand grinder. So every yeah. time, but it's so much work. I feel so bad for him. Like when he's like making us espresso, like, like coffee drinks, it's like grinding, grinding, grinding. And what's so great about the Breville Barista Pro, which again is not sponsored, has a grinder on top and you just put the pour the beans in. But okay. I, so I've made really good shots. I've made one bad one and I'll tell you what happened. I was trying to do a single shot. Basically like the mm-hmm. very beginning, I was measuring my beans and weighing my beans because I watched a lot of YouTube videos and they basically said 19 grams was a good mm-hmm. double shot. So so instead of filling the top of the chamber with a ton of beans, I would just measure out the 19 grams, put it in the top chamber, grind all of it, tamp it down, brew a double shot and it was great. And then we got to the point where Craig and I were like, okay, we, we can visually now we know what it looks like when we grind 19 grams of beans. It kind of goes above the height of the, um, what's that thing you called? The thingamajig? That... The portafilter? Yeah, portafilter. And uh, then we tamped that down. So the other day I was like, well, I, w- I don't want a double shot. It was the afternoon. I was like, I'm going to make a single shot. So I visually like tried to do half of that amount. And then I like tamped it down and I brewed a single shot and it came out really fast and it didn't taste great. It was kind of watery. And when I pulled out the portafilter, it still had lots of water on top. So can you tell me, like, what did I do wrong? But also, like, what are the other mistakes? And why is that such a mistake? And what was happening? Did you use the double basket and just fill it halfway? Mm, That's what I did. Oh. oh. So what happens when you have... So the amount of pressure that your machine is pushing through the coffee is somewhere in the range of like 130 pounds. So when you don't have the basket full all the way, the coffee can actually expand. It'll, the water will hit it and the coffee will sort of splurge all over the place. When you have that whole portafilter basket full of coffee grounds, there's nowhere really for it to go. So you're forcing it to be extracted in that sort of compacted, compacted bed. So that's why it was, the water couldn't force its way through the coffee because the coffee was going everywhere and the water wasn't able to sort of achieve the amount of pressure that it needed with some resistance. That makes so much sense. Yeah. I, <laughs> I didn't even think about that, but yeah, of course. Uh, Cause it came with a whole set of portafilters and I was like, why would I need these? I already have one. <laughs> you know, we're not portafilters, little cups to stick baskets. into the port- mm-hmm. baskets. So, okay. So then if, when you were talking about doing a bunch side by side, so what are the qualities you're looking for in a good espresso and what are the qualities you're lo- you, you notice in ones that aren't good? I love this question. So there are a couple of things I always look for when I am tasting any coffees. The first is to taste for over and under extraction. Over extraction tends to taste very bitter. You'll get a really long aftertaste that's kind of unpleasant toward the end. And under extraction tastes sour. So you'll have like a very, like almost how like a, you know how a lemon will make your mouth kind of- um, Pucker? Pucker, I guess that's the word. I knew it was if you're somewhere. (laughs) But then also it'll have a strong aftertaste, but it'll vanish and your mouth will feel kind of dry. So you look for those two things. Once I know if I'm getting over under extracted coffee, I know how to adjust for that. We can talk about that in a minute. But what I'm really looking for is a coffee that has a natural sweetness. That's kind of that sweet, that sweet spot somewhere between bitter and sour. You're going to extract the right balance of flavor notes, including hopefully something that tastes in the chocolate family in the like brown sugar kind of a family, uh, maybe the cereal grain kind of toasty malty family. And that's when it's good. 
Yeah, that's what you're sort of looking for is Interesting. that sweetness. I think my shots have been sour, I think. Oh, yeah. I think so, because you talk about puckery. What was the other one? Bitter, if it's the other Bitter. It's really hard to tell them apart. Well, also because bitter, I mean, coffee is bitter, isn't it? By its mm-hmm. nature. But, but the... So your tea. So I should just be drinking espresso to taste my extractions to start, or taking a little sip before I add the milk to get a sense of what's going on. Yeah, I mean, if that is pleasant to you, I mean, if you don't like the taste of straight espresso, like it's not no, a like ton it. of help. <laughs> <laughs> I just watched um, Mulholland Drive again. Have you ever seen Mulholland Drive? Uh-huh. And there's like the scene I totally forgot about where like there it's like a Hollywood meeting, and like there's this very important guy who comes to the meeting, and they're like he wants only a really good espresso and they like run to the best coffee shop to give it to him and it kind of he tastes it and it comes like dribbling out of his mouth because he's so disgusted so that's what i'm thinking of right now um okay so that experience yeah but if i have my machine like if i'm pulling the shot in the right amount of time like if it's between 20 and 30 seconds wouldn't that just automatically mean it's properly extracted that is a great question so we're going to get in the weeds with extraction okay the thing about 25 to 30 seconds, right? Let's say the thing about 25 seconds is that it's always 25 seconds. Like you can count 25 seconds every, you know, every hour on the hour and you're still going to wind up with 25 seconds. Coffee is a living, breathing sort of ingredient. So it, it doesn't care what that 25 seconds, what's happening at that 25 seconds. If your machine is just stopping itself or if you're not paying attention to the visual cues that tell you, well, the coffee is done being extracted. It's a little bit like that one piece of information, the time alone isn't good enough. It's kind of like if you were making, uh, if you're baking cake and the recipe said bake for 15 minutes and you baked for 15 minutes, but you didn't test if it was done. Mm-hmm. You just were like, well, it's 15 minutes is up. It's kind of like that. The cake okay. doesn't care whether 15 minutes is up or not. Yeah, I, I, I'm very familiar like... with that as somebody who just worked <laughs> on a cookbook where I had to write recipes because I was like, bake until it's done, you know, like yeah. stick a toothpick in. So that makes a lot of sense. So when I brew my espresso shot, I think the stages are like waiting, waiting, waiting. And then if it comes out like in six or seven seconds, it's usually really thick at the beginning. Like it looks really viscous and nice. And then it comes out, it comes out. And then towards the end, it starts to look more wet or like more mm-hmm. liquidy. So is that when you say like, you know, when to stop extracting, is it around that moment? Like when, the, when it gets watery? Yeah. It, again, it a little bit depends. Some coffees tend to be a little bit lighter seeming in texture, but I also look to see how the color has changed. Okay. So usually I like to see kind of one stripe of dark brown throughout the extraction. And then when that goes away, you'll usually notice that the streams start to kind of wiggle a little bit mm-hmm. because they don't have as much soluble material to keep them flowing straight. So it's kind of the combination of those two things, the, the absence of that brown stripe and the sort of wiggly motion that I'm showing you with my hands, even though I know full well this is a podcast. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I forgot to tell the audience. Um, so on my machine, and this might be so specific that people might be tuning out because most people might not have machines like this, but for you, for you and I, we can keep talking, but on my machine, when I, when I notice that that's happening, should I stop the automatic like process? Like, should I like hit a button to make it stop brewing? Yeah. You, I also have a Breville machine. They're not sponsoring this podcast, but we both have Breville products. <laughs> yeah, got it. <laughs> and my machine has 
you have the ability to manually brew a shunt. And I think that that one does too, if I recall correctly. Yeah, it does. You just hold the button down and it'll, you know, start the brewing cycle, but then you have to turn it off that way. It might be worth it just to experiment and see what your instincts tell you um, and just see how the shot tastes. But it. it sounds like you're probably in a pretty good range. It might be a matter of adjusting your dose or maybe even brewing a little bit longer. A lot of the machines that I've used that have an automatic dose set, they don't often account for like specialty coffee nerds who use more coffee than the average person. Mm -hmm. The baskets for these brevels is really rated to hold 18 grams of coffee, which means if you're using the pre-programmed button, it's not accounting for that extra gram of grounds that you have in there. So you may need a little bit longer in extraction. And so is it supposed to be filled up all the way, like visually, like when I tamp it down, should it should it stop at the top of the portafilter or should it go a little lower than that? There's a little lip around the top uh-huh. that it should be like there's a little divot. Yeah. You should be right at that line. At or the right divot. That's good to know. And then in terms of tamping down, I mean, there's so many, I mean, I watched so many YouTube videos about <laughs> all these things and people had so many, like somebody was like, when you tamp down, hold the um, tamper or whatever it's called, uh, like a flashlight, extend your mm-hmm. hand out and then turn it down and then push it at the, you know, but it's like, are you, is that, in, is that instruction meant to keep you from pushing too hard? Like, is it possible to push it too hard or like, what's the idea behind tamping? Opinions vary about tamping. I definitely think that tamping has value. I think that baristas have often assigned it more value than it has, in part because it's one of the only things that you actually do to the coffee. It's like the thing that looks like you're working the hardest. (laughs) (laughs) But to be honest, the machine is going to hit it with 130 pounds of pressure. There's like only so much preparation you are going to do with your little tamper, you know? (laughs) So should, but should I push it really hard? Like if I could push it really hard, it doesn't matter. It doesn't really matter. I would just compress it. Like I just kind of lean on it with my body weight. Yeah. You know, I think a lot of the machines that they make now to, to tamp automatically do something in the range of like 20 to 30 pounds. I don't think you can over tamp. There's really nowhere for it to go, Mm -hmm. you know, like. Okay. That's good to know. And then what about the whole thing about like an even surface, like that it's like using the razor. Like it came with a razor and Craig was like, I'm not using a razor, uh, <laughs> but like is it to, to flatten it. Like how important is that? That is actually more important than the pressure that you used to tamp it with. You want to have a nice level surface of coffee and you want to make sure that your coffee has an even amount on either side. Because even if, if one side is, is more full than another side, once you tamp it flat, it looks the same, mm-hmm. it's, you know? So it's, it is more important to make sure that you have a nice level bed of grounds because once the water starts to be pushed over that coffee, it's going to try and find the path of least resistance. It wants to get out of there as fast as possible. So if you have less coffee in one section, the coffee will, the water will rush through that section of grounds. So it, I don't know about the tools, you know, I have those too. Uh, I don't use them. Sometimes I'll use a knife to the hmm. back of the knife to sort of spread the coffee out over the top. Mm-hmm. Um, but most of the time I just kind of shake it and just try and level it off before tamping. 
Yeah, that's more, it is more, I don't know about, yeah, I think Craig might have the right idea about like not. Reasoning? Yeah. (laughs) It might be a Seattle thing. Um, Okay, so let's get to the big subject at hand. I mean, this is what I need to know the most about. Uh, It's very intimidating to me. And we talked about it briefly, but now let's get into latte art and microfoam. So (laughs) I have been, so you, so Meister's been kind enough to make videos of herself dancing alone in her bedroom, which is really weird, but so she's made some other videos. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, she made some, no, she made a video showing me how to make latte art. She was, and, and, and I should also say that um, Amanda Byron years ago, so she was a barista at Joe the Art of Coffee too. And she taught me and she told me to hold it like a bicycle handle or something like all these things. But here's what I've discovered. Okay, so step one, making a microphone. So let's talk about that. How do you make microphone? Okay, I don't know how well this will translate just sort of talking about it. You gotta do it. It's a, it's a podcast. Yeah. I know. You gotta do it. <laughs> so you are trying to basically inject air from the atmosphere into the milk. And then rather than just having big bubbles, just big trapped air, you're trying to break those bubbles down into smaller and smaller and smaller pockets so that they integrate throughout the whole pitcher of milk. That's microfoam is basically foam that you can feel, but you can't see. Mm-hmm. It just looks like pillowy milk on top. This is wonderful. You have a great way with words. I don't know why you were so nervous to just talk about it. <laughs> I, I'm nervous. I'm nervous, period. I'm just a very nervous. Don't person. be nervous. You're doing great. This is very Thank instructive. You. Thank you. So the idea is to add the air first and then spend the second half of this steaming time just texturizing. So you're adding the air right away and then folding it into the milk for the rest of the time. A lot of people will struggle with like adding too much air. You know, when you hear that sound, yeah, that's like, you only need to do that for the first 10 seconds of the process. When the side of the pitcher starts to feel a little bit warm to the touch, then you want to make sure that you lift the pitcher up so that the steam wand tip is submerged. And then you should see that rolling motion and you shouldn't hear that like Donald Duck spitting sound anymore. I just hear the milk heating up. So the Donald Duck sound though is something, so that's where the um, wand is close to the surface of the milk and that's where it's sort of like you see bubbles happening, right? You see Mm -hmm. air and that's good for the first 10 seconds and then the rest of the time is all about integrating that into the milk by by spinning it around and around or getting, angling it so that it spins round and round. I've heard that it's supposed to look like wet paint or like, (laughs) like glossy paint. So if it doesn't look like that, is it too late? Like, how can you, can you stick it back under the wand and fix it somehow? You can't really re-steam it. And this is the one place where I would say the home espresso machine struggles a little bit is with getting the force that you need and really building up the heat in the milk that you need in order to get that texture. Have you found that your milk is like too cool or too hot to drink? After I do it. It gets mm-hmm. very hot very quickly. Like, like I, okay. I put my hand next to the pitcher and it's usually really hot. Also, I don't use that much milk, which I don't know if that's an issue, but I try to use less milk because I don't normally drink a lot of milk in the morning. This is a whole new world for me, mm-hmm. which is actually a good sidebar, which is milk. Because it's like we have oat milk, we could get other alternative milks, but is it ideal in terms of just the art of making coffee or making these drinks to use whole milk? Yes. <laughs> I say that as a as a non-dairy drink, a milk drinker. Cow's milk is just the best aesthetically. I will say that the one thing about that not getting that wet paint is 
that I get that too with my home espresso machine. Often it's just that the process takes a lot longer than it does with a commercial machine. So a lot of the liquid milk kind of sinks to the bottom of the pitcher. So you remember in the video I was saying, swirl your milk around and make sure it gets kind of shiny on top again. Mm-hmm. Um, you're just going to have to do that a little bit more aggressively with these machines. Mm-hmm. You may even have to sort of like, not just swirl it in a circle, but like fold it over itself a little bit. Okay. I'm sure that there's like a, there's a, an equivalent cooking technique of like yeah folding. I guess it is just folding. Right, right. Because when you fold in like cake recipe or something, you're trying not to lose air. Like that's the yeah. idea. Like, because you've built up all that air, especially with like egg whites or something. You're trying to yeah. fold them in so they don't collapse. So that makes a lot of sense to me. But couldn't you fold them in with like a tool? Like, like you do the folding technique with like a spoon or something. I guess that would be maybe like not barista-esque to do that. You probably could. I don't know that you would get as homogenous a texture that way mm-hmm. just because it's a com- it's more like Sorry, it's more my camera. I realized I was very blurry. <laughs> so it wouldn't be as homogenous. So, okay. So now when you sent me the video, and this is what I've been practicing each morning, you suggested to make latte art to hold the properly steamed microphone. You don't, you, she's doing a visual, but you, we, we don't need a visual because this is an audio podcast. <laughs> it's for you. It's just okay. for you. <laughs> um, okay. So you take a, um, you take your microphone and you hold it up above the mug with the espresso in it. And then you pour in, you said it like, like a mouse's tail stream, which is again, very vivid imagery, very good words. Um, and then you slowly lower the pitcher down and then pour more aggressively until you get, you start to see like white basically on the surface. And then did you see, so it's, this morning, if people are looking at my Instagram, which by the time this airs, it won't be on there anymore. But if you are a follower, you, you may have seen that this morning I did just that. And the moment that I knew I did something right was when it was almost like a brown canvas with a vivid <laughs> white on top. Like it was like a vivid separation where it was like, oh, I'm painting with like white paint now. And I could have probably like made, made a heart in that moment, but I didn't quite know how to do that shape. So I did an exclamation mark accidentally. So is that the idea? To troubleshoot what's happening for you is that you're not holding the cup. You're, I mean, this is because of, you know, you're doing it for the gram, but the cup is flat and you're pouring into it. The thing there that's happening is that most of the milk is just, it's just sinking right underneath the crema until you get that sort of blob of foam at the end. And if you were to pick your cup up and pour into it as though it were a fluid object and respond to the movement of the coffee, then you would get something that looked more controlled and that actually like married the foam and the milk. I know that sounds so cheesy. This all sounds so cheesy to me. What you're essentially doing is pouring to fill the cup and to create, yeah, just like you said, to create a canvas of supported crema on top of a bed of sort of blended texturized milk. And then once you get to a certain point, it is sturdy enough to kind of hold the foam in a controlled pattern but you want to make sure that you are pouring into the coffee. Mm, how do I say that? Like it's, it's more like fluid, like fluid dynamics. Mm-hmm. The, the liquid inside will be moving forward, which creates that expansiveness of your art. And you sort of, what you're doing is controlling the movement of the coffee to create the design. I get that. Well, it's funny. Do you remember Josh who used to work at Joe? He messaged me and said the exact same thing. All these baristas I've stayed in touch with. I mean, this was a special coffee shop. So 
it sounds like what you're saying is that I'm too vain to make a proper latte art because I've been holding my camera and worried more about my Instagram audience than actually. No, I think what I need to do is set my if I'm going to record this for the world, I need to put it on like a little tripod and then tilt the mug and then pour in so that the fluid dynamics create a flat surface. And then in terms of like all those designs, it really seems like basically there's only so many ones you can make. You can make the heart. And then you can make that like one, I don't know what it's called, but it's like a flower. Is that what it is? Like a flower. Yeah, Rosetta. Mm-hmm. Rosetta. And then you see sometimes like on Instagram or TikTok, like people making like pandas and crazy things. But for the <laughs> for the the home cook or the home barista, we can stick to the Rosetta and the heart. Yeah. And the, they all have the same base, which is basically controlling the movement of the coffee in the cup when the foam is sort of integrating with it. So if you want to make a heart, you just don't move your pitcher from side to side. You just sort of expand the ball of foam on top. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you were to make a Rosetta, you would start with that same little white foam on top and you would just move the pitcher to create the petals. Uh. So it's fundamentally the same overall motion, but the the finer details are just what makes it kind of different. And then the pull through, which creates the stem of the heart or the separation in the petals. I think I'm going to get there. I think tomorrow is going to be my day. I know you're going to get there. Oh, okay. So now I have another question for you. So espresso beans versus coffee beans. Mm-hmm. In my kitchen cabinet, I have three bags of Intelligentsia coffee that we never opened because this was pre-Breville um, Barista Pro. And so could one make an espresso drink with regular coffee beans and why or why not would that be good or bad? You can absolutely make espresso with coffee beans. Espresso is just coffee. We often think of them as two different animals, but they're not. They're just two different preparations of the same thing. Just like you can scramble an egg, poach an egg, you know, fry an egg. You don't buy scrambling eggs, poaching (laughs) eggs at the store. right. Coffee is the same way. Often roasters want to control the experience that you have with the flavor profile. So they'll call something espresso beans to encourage you to use that for espresso. Mm-hmm. It usually means that there's like maybe less acidity or it's roasted a little bit darker or a little bit like longer at a, at a lower temperature to sort of create a particular profile. But there's no espresso police that are going to come to your house and say, uh, you're using coffee beans in your espresso grinder. They're, they're all coffee beans. <laughs> so will, will it taste different though? Yeah, it won't necessarily taste bad. Lots of brands don't distinguish between coffee and espresso, huh. filter coffee and espresso. You can pretty much make any good coffee any way that is good. You know, if you can make good coffee, you can make any coffee good, sort of. Got it. I, right before I got the Barista Pro, I got a... um cold brew maker thingy it's like a pitcher with like a thermos like like a like a filter in the middle that you fill with freshly ground beans and then um you just leave it in the fridge with water overnight and you get cold brew which is pretty delicious so i was going to ask you so we're going to finish up this first half or this first quarter three quarters of the podcast the second half will be a fun 10 bonus questions for the people who subscribe to my paid newsletter. So it's very expensive uh, or very fancy, (laughs) not expensive. But before we get there, I guess the final question in this part of the podcast would be like, what are the most common mistakes that home coffee makers make, whether they're making espresso or they're making a drip coffee? Like when you and Amanda would go to people's homes, where were the mistakes that you would see the most? I think uh, 
a lot of the mistakes that I would mention will probably sound kind of snobbish, but they're actually really easy ways to go from decent to fantastic. The first one is um, not weigh your coffee. Like weigh your coffee is the just like with baking, it's the most precise way to make sure that what you're getting is recreatable. I think one of the things that baffles people is the fact that like they can't tell why their coffee is good one day and not good the other day. And part of that is just you're using so little coffee that three beans makes a huge difference. It's like a huge percentage of the overall product. You know what I mean? And is this for espresso or is this for... Um, well, across I, the board. Okay. I would say if you can weigh the amount of coffee that you're using, it's it, it takes you no time at all. Most people, I think at this point, who are serious home cooks have a scale and it is a really easy way to go from okay to great. Always use cold water to start, like mm-hmm. cold, fresh water. Um, lots of people will, like if you're making pour over, leave the water in the kettle and reboil it or not clean their kettles, which can make coffees not taste great. Um, so those are like two of the most common, I would say. Mm-hmm. Then this is another one that's going to sound like a real investment, but it's it's like a fun hours exercise. Take the way that you normally brew, brew yourself a cup, and then change one variable a little bit less and a little bit more. So if you're brewing a batch of coffee on an automatic brewer, this is really easy. Add five grams of coffee on the next batch and take away five grams of coffee on the following batch and then taste them side by side. And that'll give you a sense of like, is what I usually make the best or could it be better in one direction or the other? This is easy to do with espresso because it's such an easy process. It's like mm-hmm. you will feel a little bit sick at the end of it. Uh, <laughs> or really hyper. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but most good. people just don't do that step of like assuming that there is an easy way to just make sure that your coffee is the best that it could be. So for you at home, what are your measurements? Like when you make coffee, what do you weigh out? Um, for espresso, I usually use 18 grams. Okay. For a double shot. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I'm looking for just about two ounces of liquid, give or take. You mean coming out of the espresso maker? Mm-hmm. Okay. So 18 grams, looking for two ounces of liquid. And then you don't eyeball it though? You really measure, you weigh it every morning? I don't, um, I don't weigh my output of the liquid coming out. I, I would in a professional setting, I have. You kind of get to know, it's easier to tell what two ounces of liquid looks like than 18 grams of coffee mm-hmm. in my experience. Okay. But yeah, I weigh out the beads every time. Yeah. That's awesome. All right. Well, Meister, thank you so much. I think this was very instructive. And if Great. people listened all the way through, maybe they were inspired to get their own um, espresso machine, whether at Breville or not. So, <laughs> um, well, okay. Well, stick around. Uh, we're going to now get into our 10 fun coffee questions. But thanks again for doing this part. Thank you. Thanks for listening, as always, to this week's podcast. If you want to get my newsletter where I expound on all these things, and also I'm going to share my pictures from New York, be sure to subscribe at amateurgourmet.substack.com. And I'll see you back here next week for a whole new, less congested podcast. Take care.